And I'm going to read um, for Terry's text today. I'm going to read from Exodus 20. This is the passage uh, about the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Hi. Just as we begin, just, just a few things, you know, I, I noticed as we sang the first two songs that actually none of them, I don't think, mention Jesus, God, anything. They speak about the attributes, the wonders of, of God, but they actually don't mention God. So if you were to walk in here and just sing those two songs, you'd have no idea that this is necessarily a Christian service. So I want to remind you that those songs were about Jesus, and they rooted in Jesus, and he is the king of our heart. It's not just what we think is the king of our heart. We're talking about Jesus as the king of our heart. And at the same time, I thought just... As a little reminder of what grace and what mercy is, I think we, we throw those words around these days quite a lot. But my little summary of those words has always been, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting, and it's much bigger than that, but just as simple, grace is getting what you don't deserve. And mercy is not getting what you do deserve. 
right? We need both those. We need to get what we don't deserve, and we, we don't want to get what we do deserve. So when we sing about mercy, in such a, that's a beautiful song. I've, I've said morbidly, I want that song at my funeral, or my memorial service, or as I enter the pearly gates, or something. Um, but mercy is such a good word. It reminds us that we actually live under grace. And uh, let's not forget those two things. So we're going to jump back into 1 Peter. This afternoon we're going to read from chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. I'll take a little bit from last week, bring it into this week, and you'll see why the passage from Exodus 20, which was the, great, the Ten Commandments, is important. But Peter, writing to this church in exile, people scattered throughout Asia Minor, many of them uh, having to escape Palestine, Israel, because of Roman occupation and Roman um, destroying the temple, etc., etc. They're now in exile, the diaspora people. And he's writing to keep them encouraged, in a, as we've heard, in a, a time of great distress. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I think it's one of the great two verses in the Bible. It's like in those, the top ten of the Bible, you know, if, if there could be such a thing. Beloved, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let's talk a little introduction, some things. I'll ask you this question. What is the reason that we are here? What, what's the purpose for being God's people, for being the church? For, what's the purpose? Why are we here? Why do, I mean, why do we gather? Um, we could be doing a whole lot of other different things on a Sunday afternoon, place where it might be a little cooler, um, where the fridge is easily accessible to a variety of beverages and snacks, um, movie theaters are open. There's a lot of things that we could be doing, but we are here. Why, but why? What's the reason for being here? But what's the reason for being God's people on the earth? What's our purpose? Do we ever think through those things? I like to think about it as often as I can because it's so easy to be distracted. And so I thought I'd just pop three little texts to help us in our endeavor. And the first one is from Genesis chapter 1, when God is creating, and he's creating all the beautiful earth, and everything is good, and then he creates humanity, and they were very good. And God blessed them, Adam and Eve, male and female. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, there's a whole lot around there, but just read it. Let's read that verse again. And God blessed them, the man and the woman. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's a, it's a wonderful text explaining why we are here as human beings on the planet. The pinnacle of God's creation was that we would care 
for God's creation. When it says we would have dominion, that doesn't mean we have control over the animals and we can slaughter them left, right, and center as we feel like it. It means that we would rule well. It's a kingdom word. It comes out of a covenant, and we're going to talk about that in a little moment. But God has got a covenant with these people. And then out of that, he's saying, I need you to rule with me. I've given you authority to rule and rule well. And I think when we look at our world, we've ruled badly in many cases. And so, you know, the environment and animals, those things are important. God gave us a mandate. So it's part of the original mandate. We need to think through those things. Is that all right? We're not going to unpack that today. But just to think through, that's why we are here. The second reason we are here is Matthew 28, 18 to 20. When Jesus resurrected, Jesus appears to the disciples and says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's all mine. I'm vested. Now you go. I'm giving you my authority. Go into all the world. Make disciples, followers of all nations. Wherever you go, make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptize them into this Trinitarian understanding of life, community, a triune God. Teach them to obey or to observe everything I've commanded you, and I will be with you to the very end of the earth. You know, it's an extension of that first mandate, which is to go, expand, rule, multiply. That's why we're here. Those are two important things. And then, that's the, the, and then from 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says, you are these things. Then he says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. One of the reasons we are here is to proclaim the excellencies of God. Why? Because he made covenant with us. And he rescued us. And he poured out grace and he poured out mercy in the person of Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection. That's what he did. Why? Our role is to proclaim that to the world. Proclaim his excellencies in word and deed. Wherever we go, in our lifestyles, in our practices, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our business endeavors, how, whatever. We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. That's why we are here. If we forget that, then we're attending church on Sunday. Let's, let's go home. But if we remember that, then we gather to be reminded. We gather to be encouraged. We remain, oh, this is what God wants. Let's do this together. That's, that's the reason we are here. Is that fair enough? We're called to live as disciples, as apprentices to Jesus. That's why we're here. And that involves at least three things. One is that we would be with Jesus. So the encouragement that I always is, would, are you spending time with Jesus? It's wonderful to spend time with people. We never want to stop that. But we need to spend time with Jesus because only Jesus can truly satisfy the desire of your heart. And you've got to get to know him and know what he's like. But when we're with him, we want to learn from him. We want to become like him. We want to become loving and kind and all those things. And then we want to do what he did, which is reach out to people. That's why we're here. Church attendance is where we come together to be encouraged, reminded, sing a song of worship to the Lord, pray together, be instructed, help, but then we go out and we live Jesus. So second question is, we committing ourselves to this God, or what is this God like? 
Do you ever ask yourself, do you have you forgotten? You know, what is God like? If someone says, well, tell me about God. What would you, what would you say to them? And I want to say this very simply. I think if you want to know what God is like, you should look at Jesus. You know, in Philip, in, in John chapter 14, he says, uh, just sh show us the Father and we'll believe. And Jesus says, come on, wake up. I've been with you the whole time. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we've got to take a good look at Jesus and we will know what God is like. And I'm going to explain that a little bit. In Hebrews 1.3, it speaks about Jesus in these last days. You know, in former days, God spoke through angels and the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken through his son, who is the exact representation of God. Exact. The imprint of God. So if you want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. Therefore, my encouragement as well in this whole journey is that we read the Gospels and the, and the text so that we can find out what Jesus is like, what the followers of Jesus said about Jesus, what they reported about him, what he did and how he lived, so that we can say, oh, that's what God is like. So I want to summarize this and say, if we want to know what God is like, then we look at Jesus crucified. Paul, right into the Corinthians, says, I, I came among you and I to know nothing else but Christ crucified. Because Christ crucified is not only the gospel message, the good news that, G that God has come to rescue us and redeem us through His grace and His mercy. It's also to give us a picture of what, G what God is like. God is this serving, loving, to the ends, give up His life type of God. We want to know what our God is when people ask you, what is God like? He's Jesus on the cross. That's what God is like. Now, I know it's bigger than that, but that's a really wonderful place to start. And this God has poured out upon, well, he's poured out love upon us, and he asks us to express love in at least seven different ways. You've, I've spoken this, I've preached on it, but I'm doing a reminder because I think sometimes it's important. One, we call to love the Lord our God. How? With all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. Everything. The whole person. We are called to love God. And then we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. So there's three love. You've got to love God. You've got to love your neighbor. You've got to love yourself. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, the first few is love the Lord. The next one is love your neighbor. That's why we don't covet our neighbor's things and wives and manservants. And why? Because we're called to love our neighbor. Do unto them as you would have done unto you. And the first ones are love the Lord. Love. So that's three. Called to love your family. Husbands, love your wives. I'm assuming that means wives love your husbands. Love your children. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. I want you to love one another. So we're called to love one another as the people of God. That's five. Next one is love your enemies. We don't like that one. Called to love your enemies. And in 1 Corinthians 13 says, whatever you do. What? Do it in? In love. Because if you don't do it in love, it's just a gonging symbol. It's just making a noise and making a, taking up space. 
So whatever we do, we're called to love. So we want to know why we are here, and we want to know who is this God that we're here for. You think that's important? Maybe just every week it's good to remind ourselves of that. But into that comes Jesus that has translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that means that we are now this chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, a people that belong to God. That's covenant language. We are his. We are, not, we are no longer our own. We have been bought with a price, Paul writes in another part. We belong to him. We are a new race. We are a new people. And last week we touched this. I want to say this as a sentence. That in this new race, in this new people of God, this chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's possession, there is no place for three things I spoke about last week if we here. Number one, racism. There's no place for racism in God's family. Zero. There's actually no place, not only for in the family, but there's no place for the family of God to be racist outward. It does not represent God well. We are not declaring His excellencies that way. Number two, there's no place in God's people for sexism. No place in God's people for elitism. Yes, there's rich and poor, but we are not elitist. There's no place for that in God's people because we are now his people, a new people, a chosen people brought out from all different races, colors, languages, come together into his people that still speak the different languages, that still look different colors, that still dress, all those things. We get that picture in Revelation. People from every tribe, language, tongue, declaring the praises of God. But we are a new people and we do not despise, look down on another. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus washing feet. That's another great image. Sorry, this is all introduction. We are a chosen race. We are not a chosen person. You are important as an individual, but we are part of God's people. This is a collective thing. It's not an individualistic thing. And so often we take the text and we make them just about me, but actually they're written to a people to a church, to a community, and we need to see them as that. Third, well, not third, whatever, under the introduction, we spoke about being dual citizens, and we're going to touch on that a little bit today. We are citizens of heaven, and we are citizens of where we find ourselves, and we have to learn to live in that tension. Touch on that in a moment. And we spoke about this issue that Jesus has called us, not because he wants to give us a destination to go to, but because he wants to give a destiny for us to live out. Does that make sense? So many times we get saved, born again, whatever, so we can go to heaven. No, no, we get saved, born again, so that we would have destiny and start living that destiny right now. That will include, include a destination. So, is, there, is that anything clear? Is that right? So, I want to talk quickly about this covenant and kingdom. Because I think that covenant and kingdom are two of the tracks that the, the scriptures run on. And if we understand those two things, and I'm not going to unpack it all in detail, but if we somehow come to grips with those two things, we under, we'll begin to understand why the writers said things that they did. So whenever you read one of Paul's letters, or you read one of Peter's letters, or you read John, they always front end 
with kind of theology. This is who you are. This is what Jesus has done. Therefore, live like this. This is covenantal language that God has gone into covenant with us through Jesus, through the blood of Jesus. He's established this. But because we're in covenant, now we need to be careful how we live in this world, among ourselves, with outsiders. So the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God, called you out of Egypt, covenant language. Therefore, you will have no other gods besides me. You will not take my name in vain, da-da-da-da-da. So that's kingdom language. You want to rule well, that's what you have to do. Out of this covenant comes this way of living, which is kingdom, because we are a kingdom of priests, the way that we live. We're meant to have dominion. We're meant to rule. And we can't rule well when our lifestyles don't reflect the king who we're ruling on behalf of. Is that all right? So there's this covenant and kingdom, two tracks. This is who you are. This is how you must live. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, that you may proclaim the excellencies. Beloved, I urge you as this, live a certain way. The whole text is written in those two things. Jesus reminds them who, who, who they are. Now do this. God in the Old Testament sends prophets. Remember who you are. Please change the way you're living. I mean, that's kind of the whole Bible. Those, these two tracts. And as we get into, into this bit of the text, it's important for us to understand that. Is that a good enough? Is that clear as mud? All right. Beloved. <clears throat> that word, agapateo, that's the Greek word. It's actually a very, very deep, intimate word. It's not like, hey, friend, hey, buddy. That's not what that word means. That's Peter writing as an old man, most probably in Rome, writing to this church in Asia Minor that's under pressure, under persecution, oppression, just everywhere, and he's feeling deeply for them. He loves these people. Maybe he knew a whole bunch of them when they were in Jerusalem. And he says, beloved, an old man, beloved. That's a deeply intimate word. He wanting them to know that he cares. Because sometimes I think we see the scriptures as just these harsh or these orders or this and he's saying no 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 i want you to know this comes from the very deepest part of the intimacy that i have for you people beloved would you listen to the things i have to say <clears throat> all right so let's read that there's two verses beloved i urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul keep your conduct among the gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Really what Peter's writing to this people and he's trying to encourage them how to live in right relationship with unbelievers in a pagan society. That's what he's trying to encourage them to. These are people in exile. They're out of their own homelands. They're living as people in exile. Whether they were physically exiled or because they were Christians. Both play. And he's trying to encourage them how to live that life amidst unbelievers in a pagan world, which is very much where we find ourselves today. Today, Christian um, anthropologists and that will talk about the church as a people in exile on the earth, or at least in the Western world. 
We are people in exile. We are no longer the dominant, important, center stage people. We are people on the fringes, people to be despised, people to be spat upon, people who are bigots, people who are this, people who are that. <clears throat> and so this letter is written to us too. We can, we can ex extract from it great things on how to live the God life in a pagan world, in a world where, pe where people are not believers. Our world is radically, radically, and I mean, I don't have to tell you that, becoming against God, or at least against a single God. How do we live in that? Um, <clears throat> and Peter's basically saying to them, and we'll, this will unpack as we go in the next few weeks, he's <clears throat> trying to encourage them how to live as faithful witnesses to the truth of the gospel in a way that doesn't and I want you to hear this because I think it's important. That doesn't unnecessarily offend the society that they live in. Because I think it's easy to say we are believers and you're all going to hell and we just offend everybody else. But when Peter's writing here, he's actually saying he's trying to teach them how to live among those people. Not to give up their values, not to give up what they believe. Not to throw themselves so in the culture that they don't, they look, they don't look the same. You know, they, they, they lose their distinctiveness. But he also wants them to live in the culture. Otherwise, the, the best thing to do is, you know, move to Arizona, build a compound, grow veggies. Well, obviously, we need air conditioning. Whatever. And, and separate ourselves. But actually, no, we're called to live in this world. All of us live in Los Angeles. Our... our Mantra for our church is how to live as disciples of Jesus in Los Angeles, in this city that's pluralized and syncretistic and all over the place. It's just, this is where we call to live. So how do we do that distinctively without just becoming weird? Peter's right. Is it that bad? Why? Why would he want us to do that? Anyone want to guess? Exactly. For the sake of the gospel. And if you understand this principle, next week I have to speak in, I'm, spe no, no, I'm speaking at Anthem Camarillo and they always give me the most interesting texts. They have given me 1 Corinthians 11, the first part, which has to do with head coverings, which is one of the most frustrating passages in all the Bible. I've read 12 commentaries and none of them agree. I've read old commentaries, new commentaries, conservative commentaries, liberal commentaries, and they're all over the place. But here's this one thing that comes out. Is what was happening and why some of those instructions were given had nothing to do with authority structures. They had to do with how to bring the gospel into a pagan culture. Maybe we'll unpack that sometime. But in this text, we've got the same idea. He's saying this. Um, the, the text, let me just read that text again. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's saying, I want you to live in such a way that you, they don't write you off before they've heard the gospel. So if you were a woman, I'm picking on the woman because I'm just referring back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and God calls you to Saudi Arabia to be a missionary, 
Are you going to prance around Saudi Arabia without a head covering? We are the liberal free Americans. Would you do that? You'd be out on your tail. No one would listen to you. No matter how free we are in that culture, you'd wear a head covering. Take it off. No one's even going to listen to you. Whether you think it's right or wrong is irrelevant at that point. Does that make sense? We have to be careful about those things. And so we, that's why we learn about people's cultures. We just don't go into every town and build a McDonald's. We actually have to learn how to live in the culture, how to live our values. The distinctiveness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a world that's anti. And I would hazard a guess the number one thing would just be love, love, love. All you need is love. I think it's a really helpful one. But um, And Peter reminds them in this idea... He's saying, remember, this is not your land. You are sojourners and exiles. Or in other texts, it speaks about aliens and strangers. That's what you are in this world. So you are kind of passing through. You might live there for a time, but in the reality of the fullness, you're passing through. And as you live there, as you pass through, the way that you live, the way that you engage with people, the way your lifestyle is conducted, People will look and say, man, alive, we hate you because you won't worship our God. You only want to worship your God, but there's something about you. You are kind and loving and caring, etc., etc., and you respect what we do, etc., etc. We have to remember that. Do you remember in, in Genesis, I think it's uh, Genesis 23 or so, around about there, Abraham, he arrives and he just says, I'm, says to him, he wants a burial plot. A piece of land. He says, I'm just an alien and I'm a stranger. I'm an exile. Will you sell me a plot? God's people have always been aliens and strangers and exiles and sojourners in the land. They always have been. Because we know that our eternal home is not what we currently have. But we're here now. But we live with a different reference point. We live with a different set of value, values in Ultimately, we're breathing a different atmosphere while we are here. But we, I'll come to this in a moment. So basically, what's Peter doing? Peter's Jewish. He's writing to this, this community. It was predominantly ex-Jewish. There are Gentiles involved in Asia Minor. And he's linking them back to Abraham, the father of the faith. He's saying, what you experience now was what your father Abraham experienced those thousands of years ago. It's the same story. In Daniel, same story. He's in another place. He will not violate his beliefs, yet he serves that king well and rises to second in the land. Joseph, same. This is a long history of God's people living in places that are not their own, holding on to their values, holding on to their God, holding on to their distinctiveness, yet serving in that culture. And Peter's trying to tell us how to do that, and we have to learn as people today how to do that. How do you as a teacher, a businessman, an artist, a pastor, a retiree, a whatever, how do we engage our world with our distinctiveness without just bombing all over them? 
And so, a few more minutes, I'll be done. Important to see that just because you don't feel like you belong in this world and you sometimes feel rejected by society is not an indication that God is not with you. God is with you. God's people have always experienced that. That's why it's important to read the whole text. You think, oh, it's not just me. That's why we, re we, we read the Bible as narrative and we engage our lives into the lives of the story. Oh, okay, this place for me had happened to them too. It's all right. Almost every human condition that you can experience is in the text somewhere that you can identify with. So this is going to prepare us for as we go to the future. To live rightly in such a place, a place of exile, a place that's not our home. Peter gives two major principles of engagement. Now, this is going to be interesting. We'll see. Some of you might have to go by and think about this because we'll, when we get to the next, next week, we'll see some of this. The first one is their allegiance to God in Christ does not exempt them from submitting to pagan authority. Can I say that again? Just because we have a new allegiance to God and He is our supreme master, Whoa. does not give us the right to not live in submission to the authority of the place we find ourselves in. We have to obey the laws of the land. Angels travel at the speed limit. Does it make sense? We, I know it's hard because sometimes we feel like these laws and whatever are so unjust, but we are called to live in this land as good citizen of the land, bringing a different way and an undercurrent to change it, rather than, oh, that's wrong, I'm not doing it. I've done that for many years, and it just gets me into trouble. Peter's saying, no, no, you've got to learn how to submit to the authorities, the pagan authorities. Still with you, don't, but don't give up your distinctiveness. And where there comes a time where it's actually a clash, then you have to take a stand. Either serve Caesar or serve your God or you're going to burn. Well, no choice. But none of us are yet in that position, I don't think. At least here, in other parts of the world, but not here. So, number one, allegiance to God in Christ does not exempt us from submitting to pagan authority. And two, they must maintain their identity as God's holy people and consequently, and I'm just reading this, be prepared if necessary to suffer unjustly and without retaliation for holding to their convictions and values as followers of Jesus Christ. So we call to submit and be part of the society and be a good part of the society and bring love and kindness into the society. But when something happens that we can no longer, we don't retaliate, we hold our view, and we suffer the consequences. That bit we don't like. But it's happening more and more and more. It might not be through physical danger and physical death, but it's by possibly losing friendships and losing family and losing job opportunities and all sorts of things that come our way. But unless we see the resurrection giving us the hope of the future, then it's really hard to live now. If we are strangers, 
And if we are sojourners, exiles, aliens, whatever the word, all those are used in the text. If we are those people living like that, then remember people are watching. You read good novels or watch good movies. It's always when the stranger comes into town, people are very more observant. Who's this person? What have they come to do? Who, what have they come to steal? What have they? People watch strangers. Now, you might not be a stranger because you've lived on your street for 20 years. But your values, the way that you live, the way that you engage might be totally foreign to everyone else who lives on your street. I know, speaking about my neighbors to myself, we live totally different from them there. No. We have a lot of Christians on our street now. It's, it's very interesting. <clears throat> but people are watching. People are watching us as believers. They're looking for us to fail. And sometimes they're wanting us to succeed. They want something to believe in. And they want to believe that actually this lifestyle that we have chosen enables us to live victoriously. They're not looking for perfect people. They're looking for people that know how to overcome the obstacles of life because they have another reason for living. They're watching. You know, the Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, they have good deeds. We, we don't hide them. We do. We live out in this culture. And people say, whoa. Oh, look at that. This text speaks about on that day, they will say, wow, God was real. But people are watching. Someone once said years ago, the best advertisement for Christianity is Christians. And the worst, Christians. So we are an advertisement. I, I still can't get used to that word, which we say advertisement. But advertisement. You are an advertisement. You're either a good one, a bad one, or an indifferent one. Are we, all, are we still breathing okay? He says this, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. He's bringing it to you that actually we're in a war. We're engaged in spiritual warfare to live God life. Because the things that the Jesus lifestyles asks us to abstain from are many of the things that within culture are just the norm and accepted. And there's a war. And not only is there a war, there's a war at the spiritual level because we need to remember there actually is an enemy who's out to get us. Personally, don't think that any one of us is directly under this, the attack of Satan. Maybe one of us in here is so important that Satan's got your number. But he's got a legion of, and an army that are out to undermine everything that we are about. Because Jesus started that way with a spiritual warfare. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. The devil prowls around like a lion looking or a place he can devour people. We're in a spiritual war. And the spiritual warfare is against the soul in this text. It speaks about And the soul here is not this thing when you die will go to heaven. Not that soul. It's talking about the, the entirety, the, the completeness of a human being. Body, soul, spirit, mind, heart. The whole activity of us. Is, is this war against us to undermine what God wants to do. It's our whole identity, our whole self. And a lot of that war comes through carnal desires. Just 
I won't name them all. Go to read Colossians 3, verses 5 to 10. It speaks about many. There's a long list of carnal desires, things that war against the soul. In Colossians, Paul says, I can put them to death. Kill it. Kill these things. Don't let them latch themselves onto you. I'm not going to unpack all of this. But I would say this. I think one of the carnal things that wants to get a grip of us is this reality that we be accepted by society. That we have this inherent fear that people will reject us and that we'll be nobodies and we won't, nothing will happen. And I think that we need to wage war against that thought. Actually, God's got our back. Doesn't mean it'll always be easy. But he's got our back. He's got our future. He's holding us. Rather than saying, I, I just want to be so like this, the culture that they don't. I mean, I, I do, we all do that. You find yourself in a conversation. Someone says something. You know you need to say, no, that's not good. And you find you, you, you don't necessarily agree, but you just keep quiet or whatever. We all do that. I want to ask that we just say, Jesus, would you help us in those moments to truly, truly be your people? Help us. And when you fail, it's okay. Just, oh God, I messed up. But there is a war involved here. That's why at the end of Ephesians, when he's saying, put on your armor. So there's, an armor. there's a warfare against your mind. There's a warfare against your heart. There's a warfare against the way that you walk and live your life. There's a warfare against what you declare. There's a warfare. Let's be, remind ourselves of that. Our souls are fragile. I've recommended this for a long time now. Please get it and read it and work through it. It's easy read. It's um. I'm going to say outside the Bible, it's in the top three books I've ever read, in terms of its impact of caring for our souls, the entirety of who we are. <clears throat> for many of us, our souls are tired. <clears throat> We're not resting. We just don't rest in Jesus. We are tired, and it begins to affect every area of our lives. <clears throat> There's a war against our souls. Please would you, do some work. It doesn't have to be that one. But would you do some work? Find something. This is a book that was recommended to me a while back. I recommended it, I think, to Buzz, who's recommended it to the United States of America and beyond. <clears throat> it's called The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. Easy read. Powerful principles to care for our, part of it, to care for our souls. Soul keeping. Because sometimes we don't have time to cover everything. So there is material. Let's actually engage where we can. So here's a mantra for living. Abstain and maintain. He says, yeah, abstain from those things and then live a life. Maintain these things. And I think this warfare includes those things that we're learning to abstain, say no. But we're also learning to maintain, say yes, and engage. So we're saying no to sexual desire where it's, it's not of God. 
And we're saying yes to, I like what, when Aaron read it, we're saying yes to Sabbath because it's teaching our souls to rest or whatever. We, we abstain and we maintain. That's another talk. We can give it another time. So, conclusion. Your lives count whether you think it or not. Your lives count. Your lives matter. You are valuable. You are created in the image and the likeness and the imprint of Almighty God. And Jesus came through his blood, shed blood, came to redeem you from the curse and put you back on course so that you could live the God life that he intended from the very beginning so that you would rule and reign well. Your life matters. Is that okay? When you wake up tomorrow and you feel, I feel like crap, I just don't feel like that. Your life matters. Have a look in the mirror and say, I love me without being arrogant. Then you can love your neighbor. Number two, ponder and meditate on what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this world. We have to think about that. Because if you don't think about it, the world just happens to you. Life just happens unless you take concrete steps to live in it. You know, if you, what was the, the, the famous old quote? If you, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So if you don't take charge, if you don't put things into place, then you're planning to fail. We have to think through the, we've got to work through these things. We must meditate on what, what it actually means. Think through what are the things you need to abstain from and what are the things you need to engage in. Think through those things. You don't have to do them all in one list tomorrow. But begin to say, God, show me. What is it that you're showing me now that I have to say no to? Sometimes the no is a, in quite a good thing. But it's not good for you at that point in time. Only you know that under the Spirit as He leads you. When we make universal declarations, I mean, there are a few we can. You should not steal. Don't steal. It's never good to steal. But some of the other things that God might be adjusting you are very personal. That's why we stop and wait and meditate and hear God. What paradigm is framing your view of the world, your future, your role in the world, whatever? What paradigm is shaping you? Or are you letting the world's paradigm and what other people think shape you? Are self-help books shaping you? Or is the narrative of what God is doing with his people shaping you? Your choice. What's shaping you? What paradigm? What are you operating from? Some things to think through. This is those two verses from the message. Mr. Eugene Peterson. Friends, this world is not your home. So don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Natives there doesn't mean African things. From where I come, it means where you find yourself. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. <clears throat> this bit here, don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Father, we <clears throat> thank you for your consistency and your patience and long-suffering with your people. 
And even there, way in 1 Corinthians 13, when it speaks about love, that great text on love, the first one, love is patient. And you have demonstrated that patience for millennia. Oh, we are so grateful. Then it goes on to say, love is kind. Oh, you have been so kind. Would you help us this afternoon as we come to the table, this covenant meal, this meal that reminds us of your love for us, this meal that reminds us of what God is like. We see Jesus on the cross. This meal that reminds us that our sins have been paid for and covered by the shed blood of Jesus. This meal that reminds us that there's an eternity in the future where we will share in a meal with Jesus again. This meal that reminds us that because of this covenant relationship, you gave us a mandate to live as your ambassadors, your, your people. Would you help us? Would you help us? You have been faithful. <clears throat> Most of us, I would hazard a guess, find ourselves struggling. Most of us would find ourselves wrestling with some of the realities of the world that we live in. Most of us would be afraid of, at some point of being rejected and scorned and laid aside. <clears throat> All of those things might be true, but may we first be so envisioned by you, seeing what you like and what you have done and how you sustained your people, etc., 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 that that would give us the energy and the purpose and the vision. May we read the story of Daniel. He knew his God, and therefore he lived that way. Be with us, we pray, Lord Jesus.